All right, if you would take your Bible this morning, we are going to stay in our study of the book of Joshua, and we're going to finish out a section that we began last week, which probably ensued with lots of conversation about Rahab's lie. So if you figured all that out personally, and you've got all those things figured out, you come and talk to me, because what a challenging circumstance, is it not? To begin to think to yourself, what would I do? How would I respond? And uh, from what I heard and what I gathered, uh, and even amongst our own pastoral staff, we're thinking, what do we think about that? Like, that's just interesting. And, and so I hope it draws you uh, just to draw you into the story as it continues to unfold. We left the spies getting uh, hidden under the stalks of flasks with a conversation going on with Rahab in the midst of her house, having had to endure and walk through a very uncomfortable scenario with the king of Jericho, now having been over, now they're going to extend this conversation uh, this morning. And we're in a text where when we think about Thanksgiving, I think it's, it's completely providential that we're talking about Thanksgiving in light of the saving of Rahab and the grace of God. Because I don't know about you, in and of yourself, there's just, you know who you are, you know what God's working with, and so you know what a disadvantage we would put him at as sinners to try to get something to come out good out of something that's completely wicked, and yet he did it only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and he did it over and over and over again in lives of people who are here, but also in the story of Rahab and so this morning as we talk about Rahab and the scarlet cord and the grace that God put on display through her life follow with me as we continue this story in Joshua chapter 2 starting in verse 15 uh, I want to read this together it says then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall and she said to them go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your, your brothers, and all your father's household, Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath, and that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the men returned, and they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them, and they said to Joshua, Truly, The Lord has given us all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the lands melt away because of us. 
Now, you remember Moses or uh, Joshua had, uh, had set out and told the people within a certain amount of days they were going to be gathering up their belongings, making a preparation. And in tandem with this story, he sent out the secrecy of the spies. Go out, go to Jericho. And so they were anticipating, what is God going to do? How are these people going to respond? It's not as if when the people went into the land, all the cities of the, of, of the promised land, especially Jericho, it's not like they were standing there with the gates wide open with their keys ready to hand them over. Like, here, we've been doing this for years and we built this for you, but we just didn't know it. There was a level of that where the spies were, were trying to understand if God's given to us the land, then how, then what will happen? What will become of these people? And then what are we going to do? Well, they come, ironically, to first and foremost, to the place of an individual who was the most un, an unlikely individual, obviously, uh, by her occupation, and they come to an har a harlot's house. No doubt, I don't think this is, uh, we didn't make mention of much of this uh, last week, but I will make mention of it today. I don't think these spies were uh, foolish individuals. I think they knew that there was a lot of coming in and going out in the, in the course of this household because of the traffic, it would be a great place to hide. And yet, at the same time, they were, they were spotted and Rahab had to go through a various uncomfortable scenario with the king of Jericho. Now this morning as we talk about this in our lives and we, and we meditate and reflect on her life, because I, uh, someone, I said to someone last week, well they said, you know a lot happens with Rahab. And I said, I know she deserves her, uh, her own sermon. That's what she deserves. And so that's what we're going to do today with this emphasis of this main idea that God saves us and sanctifies so that the majesty of his grace would be displayed from generation to generation. That is really what I think when we take uh, what is going on in this text and we look at the life of Rahab, we see, we see before us, we see a harlot, we see the hand of God, and we see a history of faith in a woman and a most unlikely character at an unlikely time frame. And we see God not only save people like Rahab, but we see them sanctified. And why does he do all that, by the way? See, there's a purpose for you and I. As we launch into this story and we think about, uh, we think about Rahab, her life, and all that had transpired, and all the history that we now have in the Bible about her life, it, it should scream this to you as a Christian. God is up to something in your life. He is going to use all things that have transpired in the past, in the present, and on into the future in ways that will exalt and put on display the very glory of God. He has not only done that in, people's, in, in people like Rahab. He is doing that here. He is taking people at unlikely times, from unlikely places, putting unlikely people into their pathway who will share the truth of the gospel, and he redeems them and he sanctifies them. And I want to challenge you as we, as we begin this uh, into, to continue to journey into this story. Are you growing in your sanctification? You know what he did for you. 
You know what he did for you and his son Jesus Christ? You know the sacrifice that would need to be made to pay for the kind of sin that you and I uh, were born with, that we practiced? But are you still deliberately focused on growing as a Christian? It is not enough to have your salvation testimony just be a thing that happened in the past. It ought to be something that is happening, happening vibrantly in the present that you look forward to in the future. And I would challenge you, are you that person? Are you looking forward? Are you thankful for those very things? You know, we often think about Jonathan Edwards back in history who spoke a very famous message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, which wrapped the minds around his listeners to say that you cannot have God. A God of wrath is coming. And in the story of Rahab, what we find out is that we're not only sinners in the hands of an angry God, but we are sinners in the hands of a gracious God. A God who knows and is deliberately justice. He knows, he's deliberately just. He knows all your past. He knows the things that have been stored up for wrath. And he even, at times, as in Jericho, these people are coming into the land, and he has devoted some to destruction, which we'll talk about. But in the midst of people who deserve the destruction of God, they, they get something very different. Rahab was a sinner in the hands of a gracious God in a very important moment in the life of the people of Israel. I want to talk about her for just a moment because we, we spoke of her briefly last week, but I think she's such an amazing figure when we realize her history and understanding and God's sovereignty we, we are immediately taken back by her occupation, are you not? Thinking, what is happening? Why would the spies go here? This is not the right place to go. Can't you find other places that have a few more traffic in it that you could go other than this? But you chose that? But do you realize, uh, here you had a woman realizing what was transpiring on the east side of the Jordan and realizing that everyone has been shut up inside the city and, and there is turmoil that is going to come. There's likely destruction that would happen as a result of war. And she is in her house thinking to herself, my heart is melting away and so is everyone around me is thinking the same thing. What will become of us? And here you have a woman in her own mind being worked on by the Spirit of God and being drawn, and all of a sudden, two spies just happened to come into her place, of all places. And you may tend to think, you know, I mean, perhaps she thought to herself, I don't deserve saving. <laughs> you know, over the years, as I've cared for people on a very, in very close settings and counseling and discipleship and all through these there are so many times where I will hear someone say to me, but you don't know who I was. You don't know how I behaved. You don't know the things I've said, the things I've practiced. And they follow it up with saying, I just don't think God really wants someone like that. Rahab is the story of God's grace 
the story of someone who redeems the past no matter how ugly it had become. A person entrenched in practices of wickedness set up against the law, which was a despicable thing in the life of the people of Israel. Oh, the words of comfort and grace we can give to people to, to, as they're searching and being drawn to the things of the Spirit of God and salvation and to say to them, no, if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, you are exactly the kind of person he is looking for. People who are humble, people who understand that they're sinners and they're destitute for destruction, and yet they humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, and he says, you are now my child. Oh, Christians, we were all at that point. There is not a single person who bears the name Christian who cannot look back and say to themselves, I should be here before the throne of grace. No, this is, a, this is a work of grace. This is a work of God of mercy in our lives because every time do you not get this sense when you go before and you pray before the God of heaven, there's a sense of unworthiness like you just shouldn't be there. You know who you are and yet this God who comes to us and this God who came to this individual Rahab spoke a very different message in the midst of fear, in the midst of panic, in the midst of her heart melting away with the people of Jericho thinking, what will happen? What will become of me? What will become of my family? Clearly, harlotry was not the occupation you'd want your daughter to go into as a, as a, as a mother and a father. It demonstrates a level of low social class. If you couldn't do anything else, well, this is all you had. Often this idea became an illustration for the way that the children of Israel would make harlots of themselves with the gods of the land. And here you have in the story, no doubt intentionally bringing us up to speed about the conquest of this woman who been by God's grace makes a profession like this. This is so remarkable when we think of her profession of faith because sometimes we always look, especially in the conquest, by the way, as you study the Bible, you think, well, God is the God of law and judgment in the Old Testament. But man, just keep reading and you'll get to the grace of Jesus Christ in the new. See, here you have a story where God's grace is wonderfully put on display. Because we recognize as believers, and still today, that God knows that not everyone will embrace the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means there are going to be people that you and I know, and it should break our hearts, Christians, that they will never enter the eternal rest that you will one day experience. They will have lived their lives frivolously, and engaged in the fullness of the world's agenda. Oh, it ought to break us. And it ought to help us to rejoice when, as Jesus so often would state to his disciples, that when the good shepherd would go out and he would find the one lost sheep, that he would bring them into the fold. Rahab was one of those. 
outside the people of Israel, but not just outside. Outside as a, as a heathen unbeliever, but outside even in moral practices that would follow suit with her spiritual condition. And she makes this profession in Joshua 2, 9. And, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I mean, if you were the spies at this particular point and you were looking for a sign, this is it. <laughs> I think they're under those, they're talking with her going, did you hear what she just said? That's what Joshua just told us, God told him. This is confirmation over and over and over that God is in it, he's with you, he's present, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. She goes beyond this that I know, because if you just left her profession here, you would think, well, do you really know? And we've had conversations, haven't you? Where someone might say, well, I know God is really good, and you hear a lot of faith conversation, but you walk away wondering, but do you really know? Well, the conversation continues, and she says, and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She continues uh, to move on, and she says this, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now, that idea of having no spirit in your heart melting away is this reality. There was no courage left. If you were a man, in the, in, a warrior, and you were a captain in the army and a general of the army, the thing that you wanted to muster up with your men is have courage. And she's saying every one of us bound up in the city of Jericho have no courage left within us. Our hearts have melted away because of you. And now look at what she says. For the Lord your God, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. I love this particular profession when we think about it because here is what she is proclaiming. The God of Israel is the only one who is God. He is the only one who can save. Because if there's a destruction happening, he is the one that is bringing it about. He is the only one who rules in heaven and on earth. That is the profession, in a sense, of the Old Testament believer, a very repentant heart. Why do we know that? We'll talk about that in a second. But just recognize her profession. It wasn't, if she was, it wasn't as if she, she was in the city walls of a pagan world in a pagan culture. And she says... There's one God, and it's not the ones that I've been, the people here in Jericho have been worshiping. He is not the true God. Your God is the true God. And you know what? By her demonstration of her, her works, the demonstration of her heartfelt uh, embracing of the spies, she recognized that the only way she could be saved was this God who brought a salvation to the people out of Egypt. The same God who would save them from the hands of Sihon and Og, the kings across the eastern side of the Jordan River. And if she would be saved, she would have to embrace this. And it and appears she has. The only one who rules. Get these, the flavor of these words. The one who rules, the one who is doing this, who has from heaven and on earth 
I love the way that she phrases this. He's the God of in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Believers, the expanse and the extent of the eternal kingdom of the Father of heaven exists everywhere your eyes will ever see, every place you will ever go. God rules there. This place on earth, in earth history, in real space and time that we live, this God of heaven who is so outside our comprehension, breached through time and sent his son in real earth history to save people who should be destroyed. He came into our lives at points where we were idolatrous, ways that we were sinners and didn't even see ourselves in the hands of a God of wrath. And then we met him in the gospel. Some faithful brother or sister came across our path by the sovereignty of God and and intersected our lives with this glorious message that there is a way and a truth and the life and that no man comes to the Father except through this one. And your heart, by the Spirit of God, it resonated with this truth, and your eyes were open, and all of a sudden you had an appreciation beyond something you could ever imagine in your mind. It's because we were lost and we know what we deserve. We made a profession that he is the only God, he's the only one who can save, and he's the only one who can rule. He's the only rightful individual, the God in heaven, and Jesus Christ who will one day sit on the throne of David. Oh, when you read this story and we begin to talk about the kingdom and what God had in store, we look back at this individual, this harlot, and we think to ourselves, how remarkable that God would take a person like that and continue to save that individual and sanctify them and put her on display. Now notice something. He put her on display in the midst of the people of Israel, the people of God's covenant, to say, this is what I'm about. This is the kind of people that I have come to save. Not just you. So don't get your so hard set on Jewish people thinking you're the only ones. I got a whole bunch of people that I have come to save and this is just a fraction of the people that you're going to come in contact with that just like you don't deserve to be here. But I allow into the presence of the living God because they, they repented of their sins They trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And here in the Old Testament, looking forward to the the messianic individual, here's what Rahab could understand. There is a God of wrath who is coming. And if I don't embrace this God, there is no salvation apart from this God. Well, how do you know her faith was real? Well, one, it's this. I mean, James chapter 2 says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. And of course, it's right in the midst of a context that says works and faith. She wasn't saved by her works. She was saved by faith. 
and she illustrated it by works. There's a big difference from someone saying, you know what, I'm going to do good works because when God sees the good works that I do, he'll say, oh, I remember how good this person was. I'll save them. See, the works cannot be, the Bible says, the basis upon which God saves because in Romans chapter 1, it says there is no one who is good. Not one. Now, when you hear that, those words, there is no one who is good in a culture like ours within an unbelieving group of people in our culture, people often will immediately retract and say, well, but I am. If you ask people if they're good, I am still, I, I'm still dumbfounded to hear people say, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good person. When we realize that our soul and eternal destiny is at stake, and what that shows me is the blindness of the flesh and the blindness of sin, apart from which the Spirit of God can only break through and draw them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. Her faith was an illustration of this kind of faith because she immediately acted upon it. And in our story, here we have this remarkable woman and they're having this conversation, and I, I, don't, I try to picture this conversation to some degree because it's kind of in process the way, the way it's written in the book of Joshua. It's like, did she have this conversation while they're, you know, scaling down the wall as she's letting out? Like, you remember? Like, all right, okay, we, we do this. I think what we have here, given the language and the terminology, is a rehearsal of the conversation that took place in secrecy of the house and then she let him down the side of her house because her house was right on the outside of the wall. And you'll understand that a bit uh, more clearly when we get to Joshua 6. But she lets him down and they get to the bottom and they make oaths to each other that their lives depended on. And they were people of truth and they acted upon this. And Rahab was still having to live by faith because what guarantee? I mean, she, here she had the guarantee of the spies. And they ask her to do something very interesting that we're going to get to in a moment. I want you to notice this something about her. Her faith was enacted by works. Christian is yours? You just say you're a person of faith. But when truth be told, what does your faith actually look like in the present? Let me just ask you a question for your own self-reflection to take away. What, what fruits exist in your life as a result of your profession of faith? Can you go back from the time period in which you were saved and say, I would have never chose that, but I chose that because my heart was redeemed. There was something different. And now I, I can walk through the history of my life and say, God did that. God is doing this. God is doing this. I'm still struggling with sin, but he's, I'm, I'm still repenting for the sake of, of restoring that relationship. There's this ongoing effort in the life of your Christian walk to say, I must bear fruit. I must do more of it. Is that you? Do people who are around you, do they notice the fruit you're bearing? Or is it kind of that fruit behind closed doors? No, I really am a good guy. 
I really am doing some good things. It's just no one ever sees it. See, fruit is, is deliberately supposed to be put on display. I mean, even the grocery stores get that. I mean, you walk through, and what do you go and see? It's like fruit examiners picking it up, looking at it. I mean, I had to learn how to examine that. That's what he wants from us Christians. He wants us to examine our lives. Ask God to search our heart, as David once said, search me and know me, God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. What does genuine fruit really look like then? How can you identify it when you see it? So that you could say to yourself, oh, I am experiencing that. Because the more you realize you, you know, you have those moments where you're very self-critical of who you are. You ever had those moments? You're looking at yourself and you're looking at your life and you're looking at your choices and you're going, ugh, look at this. I should have known better. I should have thought more effectively. I should have, I should have been this way or that way. Here's a genuine fruit of faith that you have a growing level of awareness of the kind of sinner that God came to save. You look at yourself, you go before God in prayer, and you go, Lord, I am so unworthy to be here. Christian, do you have that growing sense of unworthiness? Because it is by that unworthiness that you look, and it's the way that you look at other people I'm unworthy, they're unworthy, but we have a God who can help us and give us a righteousness not of our own. And you see in their eyes yourself and who you would be otherwise except by the grace of God. That's a fruit. Grow aware, have a greater awareness of your sin. Don't just be like that person who's in James who takes a look at themselves in the mirror and just goes their own way. We're intended to self-reflect in order that we might not become a stubborn and rebellious people. Here's another one. Do you have a growing sense of godly sorrow over your sin that actually leads you to a regular repentance in your life? Because I hope you really look at repentance and we talk a lot about it when it comes to justification but you realize that you don't just repent when you're justified. You clearly do it then. But that godly sorrow is supposed to intentionally produce a repentance so that we can restore relationship with God because of the kind of sinners that we still struggle being. Or do you just weep over your sin and you look at it and you say to yourself, eh, oops, I guess I'll just try to do better. As a young person, do you allow your parents to speak into your lives? And if they, are, they, are they able to ask you with an honest answer, where is the fruit of your salvation if you profess it? Mom and dad, ask your kids these questions. Help them self-reflect and examine whether or not they are truly in the faith, not just because they grew up in church. Oh, so many people who have grown up in the church and young people who have been inundated by Christianity and did that thing that we all know and say, he asked Jesus or she asked Jesus into their heart but seemed to be so far away 
honesty. It's not just an understanding of some words we say. It's an allegiance that we have. And that's what genuine faith is. Godly sorrow produces that. Do you sense a growing, here's another fruit that you, I think, can look for. I mean, do you start living not driven by your own feelings? Oh, so many people that I've helped over the years would say, but I just feel. And I say, I know I feel certain ways too. But do your, is your faith driven by facts first instead of just by how you feel at the moment? See, the more we begin to realize our faith is not feeling orientated, although it feels like something. You know what it feels like? Thanksgiving and rejoicing. It feels good, doesn't it? It's not we're a people that are not destined for wrath. We're a people who have been redeemed. And you know what? Whether I feel like that or not doesn't change the fact if I have repented and trusted in Christ. It is not about how I feel about my salvation. It is about the fact of what he did for my salvation. And when I get the facts right, what do I say to my feelings? I do what Jeremiah in Lamentations says, and he says something like this in, in Lamentations 3. I say to my soul, soul, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His love for me is absolutely unending. It didn't take the circumstances away, but it reshaped his feelings in accordance with the facts of his faith. See, our growing fruit ought to be like this, even if Rahab had struggled the rest of her life thinking, oh, but I'm just Rahab the harlot for the rest of my life. It was about her fact, the facts that God chose to save her. I'd really encourage you to begin to ask yourself, what kind of fruits are you bearing in your Christian walk? What people are closest to you to help generate and encourage those kind of fruits, people who stir one and up, uh, other up to love and good works. Well, we get this person who doesn't deserve to be saved, and it only happens just like us over the, out, out of the hand of God. And we watch this story unfold, and we read it before our eyes, and it says, she let him down, the house in a rope. And it's interesting in the text because the rope and the, and the scarlet cord are two different words. So sometimes we get the idea like, did she leave the cord, the scarlet cord that she had let him down with? Is that the same cord that was hanging in the window? Uh, it's kind of a somewhat of a conundrum. Did while they were going down, did they say, hey, put this cord in the window? But the reality is, is the cord was just a symbol of the mark that they could say, oh, that's the house we don't destroy. Like, if you were told to put the cord there, I would think you'd be like, okay, I, I, we're tying it up. <laughs> I mean, how tight would you have tied that? I, mean, I don't know what I mean. We're like, we're going to make this thing, it's not going to move. We're going to make sure that when these people come, they can see this cord. Now, discreetly enough, because you have to imagine, she's living in a context now where she's been given a secret and she's taken an oath. Now, think of how this would be in her life. I mean, do you think probably after that encounter with the spies and the information that all of a sudden she kind of scurried quite quickly along to her family? 
because she wasn't quite sure how long they, how much time they had. She knew she told them to go into the hill country for three days. So she's thinking to herself, okay, I got three. The people are there. They're preparing. They're going to be sanctifying themselves for the task that God has given them to come into the land. She scurries about. You can only imagine. Uh, how do you do this? I mean, she, she goes to her father's house, and she talks to her mom and dad. Sit down here. I got to tell you something. I know all of our hearts are melting away, but let's come into this back room. We cannot have anybody hear what I'm about to tell you. And this is, you are sworn to secrecy about this. We're going to be saved, but you've got to come to my house. These two spies, they visited me. They're from the people of Israel. And, and I know that the Lord has given them into the, into the, in, in, into our, uh, given us to them. We'll be destroyed. But they made an oath with me that if I tied this, this scarlet cord and I hung it out my window, which it is right now there, if you all come into my house, we will be saved. I mean, I, I, I kind of wonder, like, like, what was the tendency of her parents? Like, what is, what is going on with you? Have you been having a few too many? Are you really with it? What is going on? And yet they seem to embrace it and believe and, and take the oath and understand, and they come into her house. You realize, just by the way, that this doesn't always happen. You take a very similar story in the Old Testament. <clears throat> of the Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angels come to Lot, and they say, gather all those who, who, and take them with you outside of the city. In about a short period of time, God will destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot runs out to his brother-in-laws, or to his sons-in-laws, who are going to be marrying his daughters, and he tells them this, and he says, God is going to destroy the city, and they just blow it off. And finally, they just grab Lot and his wife and his, and his two girls, and they just push them out of the city and they're saved and all the rest of those who were connected with them were lost but here she goes out she gathers her family she scurries about I mean I, I mean you have to think and you have to believe that they heard this and immediately they grabbed anything they could and they went to her house and they just sat could you imagine what that was like just sitting there waiting like everybody else is doing all kinds of things in their heart. They're thinking, I sure hope they come through with their word. I've got the scarlet cord. I, I've, got, I've done everything they've said. I've sworn to secrecy. But we will see if we don't get it destroyed. Because ultimately, it was God who would save. And here, the hand of God, we should never depreciate the value of this providence and sovereignty. At a moment in time, God sovereignly orchestrated that these two spies would come to this particular house to talk to this person, and their whole family would be saved. I can't tell you how often I look back at our own, my, my own family history, and as I have seen God work, and one by one, God had saved by bringing the gospel into uh, uh, my extended family in a way that I saw the first one come to Christ, which was my wife. And then just watch God be like, I got you, I've got you, I'm coming after you. And one by one, we just sat in awe of his miraculous grace and the power of his spirit to draw people. 
I remember a time in our family where the, the common prayer was just the common Lutheran prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let this food to us be blessed. Amen. Let's pick out. I remember that at Thanksgiving. Oh, I remember the first time when all of a sudden they said, why don't, Josh, can you pray for us? And all of a sudden, there was a transformation that was beginning to happen. Oh, I can remember the first time I heard my father-in-law pray a prayer for the first time and just sitting back going, only you, God, can do this. Only you, God, could save this family. Rahab knew that same thing. Only God can save that. If you have unbelieving family members here, can I encourage you, take hope in the Lord. Live with gospel-centeredness. Live with gospel fruit. And they will see the majesty of God's transformation put on display before their eyes. And they will say, only God could do something like that. And yes, it's going to take time. And yes, it will be a patient wait. But as you live by faith, you can appreciate all along the way the work that God is doing in your life. Here, the providence of God and his sovereignty is orchestrated in such a way so that we would stop for a moment in the story and just look toward the heavens and say, who but God could orchestrate a destructive situation and bring good out of something this bad? But he is constantly doing it in our world. She hangs the scarlet cord. Let me pause for a minute and say a couple of things about it. There's a lot of history and a lot of things of... of of historical nature that go all the way back to the church fathers about the scarlet cord. And you'll read a book and they'll say something like, well, the scarlet, it was scarlet red because only blood could, could equate for someone being saved and therefore that's why. All I'll say to that is maybe. Okay? Uh, we don't have a New Testament indication that that was the chosen color and that's the reason why. Or by the way, that Rahab herself and her family represent the church. I have no indication of any of those things in the New Testament. So what we do in our, in our Bible study when we come across something like that is we say, what does this text say? And if it doesn't go that far, then we just stick with what it says and hear a scarlet cord as a representation of God by faith allowing her to display it and then it not be her not her and her, her family not be destroyed. So that's where I land with it. Now you can land in different places, but I'm just saying to you: keep your mind focused on the true thing that matters, and it's not that the cord is a certain color. The thing at hand is we have a particular God who can save, and we know the whole story of redemption, so we understand the blood and the importance of that. But at the story at hand, it is enough to say, and we lose no impact of this story by saying, there's only one God who can save, and the God of heaven is who it is. The one who rules heaven above and on earth below. And so by faith, by the way, she hangs the cord. Not so much because of its color, but because it was part of the oath so that they could identify whose house it was because I know that she's not the only house on the wall. So you're really hoping they can distinguish it from all the other ones. She no longer had to fear, although her 
fear would still resonate in the reality because she waited in patience with her family to wait to see what would ultimately happen. She lets the spies go. They go off into the hill country, and they, they stay there for three days. The, those who are in Jericho looking for them, who went to the fords watching for their crossing, they didn't find them, so they came back. And fast forward in the story, the spies make it back to Joshua, and they say one thing in confirmation. God has given us the land. Make no mistake about it. Be encouraged. The God who spoke to you is the same God who sovereignly and providentially orchestrated an encounter with a harlot who is now in her house with her family with a, a, a scarlet cord hanging down and, and we made a promise and an oath to her that they would be saved. The hand of God is always in our lives and we can see it when we know that we experience when, when we deserve wrath and judgment and instead we get grace and mercy. I can't tell you how many times this week because of the despicable sinner that I continue to be that it is not a moment where all of a sudden I just say, oh, well, I did that repentance thing. Yeah, way back. No, repentance is a lifestyle. It's something that we quickly before, go before the throne of grace when our minds become faithless for any number of reasons that go about in our lives that God has orchestrated and we live by faith instead. And instead of being judged by the living God, we receive mercy and grace, forgiveness and cleansing. That's what we get. Oh, what a joy that is. Hebrews chapter 10 uh, notice what it says in Hebrews 11, verses 30. It says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Her faith was enacted, her fruit was demonstrated, and her history was being forged. At the end of the the story, it says that Rahab, her father's household, and her family lived among Israel for the rest of her days. That's what you get uh, when we think about how God used this woman. One, he used her in this way. Notice, I love this in Joshua 6 at the end of the destruction, which we'll get to. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom, whom, who were sent out uh, to spy out Jericho. I mean, what a testimony. A pagan Canaanite woman living amongst the people of Israel, and everyone would see her from that time forth and for on into her existence. And, and could you imagine, like, that's her. She was the only survivor. And she lives among us. I mean, here her story was told in such a way that I think is quite remarkable because I think that in many ways she encountered people in the Jewish community who did not even have the kind of faith that she had. And she probably thought to herself at some point, how can you not love this God? How can you not see his grace and mercy? Do you realize so often so many new believers put to shame people who have been saved for years? 
They put them to shame in their excitement, their enthusiasm for the gospel, and the testimony of God's saving grace. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing and a fruit that you ought to bear, it's hold on to the excitement that you've been saved, Christian. I mean, we can't just come to church and sing a song about all I have is Christ, and somehow be like, all I have is Christ. It's got to do something to your soul. Because he's using you to put himself on display for his good purpose in your life and in the people's lives around you. Sing with all your heart. Live with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, the Bible says. Rahab lived among them. Notice, this is so remarkable. I mean, how do we get here and Rahab in the line and the lineage of of Jesus Christ? And it says here in this little nugget tucked away in the genealogy, but Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Amongst David's dynasty would come the King of kings and the Lord of lords in whose season we now begin to rejoice. This is the coming king, the one the prophets proclaimed the ones we sit together and and stand in awe and be thankful for here. I mean, isn't this remarkable? Rahab's mother, Rahab was the mother-in-law of Ruth. I mean, I wonder, I mean, what kind of conversations happened when Ruth the Moabitess came back and this whole Boaz story took place and they're like, let me meet your, let let me meet some people in your family and she she introduces, he introduces her to Rahab. Like, you think Ruth could resonate with being an outsider? All of a sudden, Rahab was an outsider who became an insider. I mean, the fact that Rahab, although condemned for destruction, but was redeemed and put into the royal line, and Jesus Christ himself had no care or concern to who was in that family tree line, it's like, how do we erase a few branches? Like, we're not sending in blood work for this one. <laughs> he had no problem with it because they were evidence of God's redeeming grace. I mean, you think about these people, Rahab, Ruth, outsiders of Israel, who now became insiders to the people of God. We, Christians, were outsiders who became insiders in the family of God. Rahab's husband was a chief of the tribe of, Israel, uh, the tribe of Judah. I mean, because I'm strange, I'm asking all these questions of the text. I'm thinking to myself, when, when Salmon brought Ruth home, what'd mom and dad say? <laughs> like, can't you pick a Jewish woman? You had to pick her. But here he's, he has no problem. Why? Because she was saved and the fruit was so evident, she was so changed that the whole family line of the tribe of Judah could say, because he was a chief of the tribe. We know her. She is redeemed. She is one of us. Be mindful just by happenstance as people come here and are outsiders to the family of Cape Bible Chapel. Be good to encourage them as they look and enjoy becoming an insider here in the history of this church. 
rejoice and celebrate with them. God is doing such an incredible work. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because he loves to put on display his saving grace. He loved to do it with Rahab. He loved to do it by his sovereign and providential hand so that all of our history of our faith could be reforged and reignited in a way that we can say, it's not me, it's him. It's not me, it's him. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you're an outsider to the grace of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has not been credited to your account yet. Oh, and I fear for you. Because there is a coming destruction. There is a day, by the way, that Revelation talks about in Revelations chapter 20, that there is a great white throne judgment that will come. And, and what we begin to realize is that I want to ask you this question. Is your name going to be found in that book of life that is opened at that great white throne judgment? Oh, all the sea and all the earth would give up their dead to come and stand before the great white throne judgment of the living God. And here's what it says in Revelation uh, chapter 20. When we think about this in Revelations 15 uh, in, in verse, uh, in chapter 20. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I know that's a harsh reality and it's hard to stomach. But we have a God of justice who is annihilating sin, who has offered the free gift of salvation and righteousness through his son. And you can have it if you repent of your sin. You view and you say, you are the only God. You are the only one who can save, the only one who can forgive. Your name will be found there in that book and you will be saved. If that's you, I plead with you, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christians, I plead with you, share this gospel. So many will be lost. And I say to you as Christians as we close, you have been redeemed for his holy purposes. Don't you love a verse like this when we think about this reality in 1 uh, Corinthians 6? Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christians, live holy lives. Don't forget who you were, who he saved. Put him on display in the world and the people in your lives so that they can see how you exalt the living God. Rejoice, be thankful. Don't be a complainer. Don't be a slanderer or a gossip. Rejoice, serve, love one another, and love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and rejoice in his saving, redeeming work of grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, Lord, for your kindness to be displayed in such a way and be put on display in the life of Rahab and in our very lives as redeemed, repentant, Christian people.
who have no business going before the throne of grace, but are welcomed there through, through the work of your Son, who has redeemed us by his blood. Lord, thank you for saving us. Help us to exalt you more and more each and every day as we look to live holy lives. In your name we pray, amen.